What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 158 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Zach Marr. Zach is an American expat writer living in Gothenburg, Sweden. However, I brought Zach on the show to describe his experience of living at the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, France. If you haven't heard of this bookstore, it's an iconic bookstore. It's been in Paris since 1951. It was founded by a man named George Whitman. He was a bit of a wanderer, a bit of an eccentric, and a bit of a drifter. He's quoted as saying, I created this bookstore like a man would write a novel, building each room like a chapter. And I like people to open the door the way they open a book, a book that leads into a magical world in their imaginations. Over the years, George welcomed people into his bookstore. He called them tumbleweeds. Now, tumbleweeds had three requirements if they chose to live with him at the bookstore. They had to read a book a day. They had to help out at the shop a few hours a day. And they had to produce a one-page autobiography. Over the years, George collected thousands and thousands of autobiographies of all the people who passed through his shop and stayed with him. From writers, travelers, and dreamers, every single one of them left behind a piece of their own story. As did my good friend, Zach. Zach got to stay at the bookstore for the last year of George's life. And throughout the episode, he talks about the experience and how it impacted his life in such a magical, special way. And I brought Zach on today to hopefully impact your life when you hear this story and how by going out in the world, wandering through Paris, stumbling into a bookstore and finding this magical world where Zach fit in. Zach really fit in for the first time in his life. And as we talk about throughout the episode, really shaped his life and the writer that he has become today. So this episode is for you, the listeners, with one specific listener in mind, a good friend of mine, David, sitting in a warehouse back in California, who I know loves to read, loves to write and is ambitious to get out there and find that little magical bookstore of his own out in the world that will help him pen that literary masterpiece that I know he has in him. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Zach. I hope it inspires you as it has inspired me to hear this story. Continue to try to design, create, develop that lifestyle, that thing inside myself that I know is in there that I think can benefit the world. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone and hit the subscribe button. If you like this episode, it'd be awesome if you share it with somebody else you think might benefit from hearing Zach's story. And if you want to learn more about the history of this bookstore, I have provided a link in the show notes, which will take you to the history of the bookstore and all the really cool people that passed through it throughout the years. Notable writers such as Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs of the Beats, Henry Miller, the list goes on and on and on. And as I said, thousands of people have passed through the bookstore. There's one-page biographies on all of them. And if you ever get to Paris, it would probably be really cool to look up and see who's passed through those doors. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Zach Marr. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by my good friend Zach Marr. He's an expat living in Sweden who I've gotten to know over the years, and his story is really intriguing to me. And this episode is actually dedicated to a good friend of mine, David, who's working in the warehouse in Santa Ana, California, somebody I'm really trying to inspire to get out there and, and do what my friend Zach did. And so, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Chapin. I'm glad to have you, dude. I do appreciate you taking the time because it's pretty late right now in Sweden, isn't it? It's not so late. It's about 20 to 9, but uh, I'm just sitting in the kitchen. Okay, sweet. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And, um, you know, Zach, Zach is from New York originally, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I grew up um, <clears throat> about an hour north of New York City. And were you always somebody interested in trying to leave New York and you know, try a different life outside of New York or, or how'd that come to be? Uh, I was absolutely not interested in at all uh, growing up in, in going anywhere. Um, I did not travel much before I was in college. And, uh, the first time I left the country, I was maybe 19 <clears throat> and I was a runner, a very competitive runner when I was in college. And I went to a run for, maybe a month one summer in Kenya, which is quite a, um, 
quite an intense first experience outside the country. You know, I'd never been to Canada, but and I never been to California, but went to went to Kenya um, uh, with my my younger brother and a buddy of ours to go running up in a a pretty remote little town up on the top of the Rift Valley. Um, we lost all our baggage on our way there. There was some kind of huge luggage carrier strike in London Heathrow Airport, so we lost all our baggage. And we spent six weeks up in this village, which is really renowned. It's called Iten, Iten, Kenya. Um, and it's quite famous for producing very, very good runners, world-famous uh, distance runners. And so we were there for like six weeks, and that was definitely my first experience of a, a foreign culture. But I don't know that it gave me the desire to, to explore in that way, to explore the world or anything like that. Um, when you lost your luggage, were you there for six weeks without anything to wear? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty awesome. Um, no, we did have stuff to wear because, uh, because of course the people there have clothes, you know, we're not talking, this is not like, you know, this is not uh, colonial times, you know, uh, the people definitely had clothes and, uh, what we did is we, it, it was quite surreal actually. Um, like once a month, someone just comes with a container you know, like a, from a container ship. And this container is full of all of the, the clothes that have failed to sell at like the Salvation Army. And, uh, and they sell them by the pound there in the village square in this little village in this town up in the mountains. Um, so we basically just went and bought like a bunch of secondhand American clothes. Um, and we looked, I mean, we looked crazy. You know, we were wearing like all kinds of kinds of crazy clothes but it was quite surreal because you're wearing like you know west plainfield high school uh athletics t-shirt but you're in kenya um uh, so yeah no we had we had clothes but um not our own and they were secondhand but we looked pretty fresh i can tell we really looked quite fresh actually <laughs> that's so cool with yeah. uh your passion for running and then going to kenya to you know, run with they they claim some of the best runners in the world. What was that experience yeah. like? It was really intense. Um, and the runners, it's not a joke. Like these these guys are extremely talented. And not only that, but like you know, I was a pretty spoiled kid from suburbs in New York City going there. Um, and the guys there, like it's real life. You know what I mean? They um, they're there because this is like you know, it's like sort of hood basketball. You know, this is their one shot. And, um, many of these guys, you know, they like grow up extremely poor. They have some marginal talent at running and they realize that their only means of becoming what we would call like, uh, middle class is to, um, exploit that talent to the absolute max. So they go to these little villages and then these European coaches come and basically like buy these guys as indentured servants and pay for them to train for whatever it is, like several years in order to get them good enough to go to the world championships or the Olympics, uh, while just like paying for their food and their, their, their board and their, you know, their running shoes and need new running shoes all the time. Um, and for these guys, it's super cutthroat, you know, like if they don't, if they don't perform, um, they're screwed and their families are screwed. And so they are, they're out there to win, to, to win, you know, on a whole nother level than I was when I was 19 and pretty spoiled and, um, just looking to, you know, to get better. And, uh, so basically I was there and I'm like running with the women who are Olympic championships. I'm out there training with these women, um, Olympic, Olympic champions and world champions because the men are just like, these guys are unreal. Like it doesn't, you can't even fathom, you know, going out and running 20 miles on a Sunday um, waking up the next day and running mile repeats, you know, 10 mile repeats at five minutes a mile, boom, 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 10 times. Um, and that's just like, that's like going to the office, you know? And wow. so that was, that was real. That was like watching. It was like, it was like I'd grown up running, you know, running for several years and knowing it as a sport and something that you do for fun and for, um, for co competition, you know, and to get into college and whatever. But then to go there and be like, these guys do this, and it's like it's like Russian roulette, you know. It's like the stakes are so high that you just see it in these guys' eyes. Like they see me coming there, and they're just like, how can how can I exploit? They look at me and like, how can I exploit this person to somehow like get to the top? Um, hmm. And because it's just that's what it is, you know. They just need to they need to get money. They need to get paid, and um, 
so that was a big that was an experience really understanding something about the world through that you know mm. um I'd like to dive a little bit deeper just because this is intriguing to me about what you just said with these runners coming to these villages where they're more or less bought by um, a European coach. And they're yeah. – can you explain that because it sounds it sounds pretty gnarly, dude. Like what does yeah. it actually mean? Like are these people just exploiting them and their talents and they, they don't make any money in the end? Like I don't understand what you're su- saying. It's, it's super fucked up. Um, but like when, when you live in this village, you know, because – there's people there who are training, but there's also people there who are sort of washed up, you know, like in in any sport you have wash-ups and there are plenty of wash-ups and basically the wash-ups, these are guys who like they were good enough to get on the circuit of races in Europe, you know, which means that some coach, mostly Italian, um, Dutch, French will come down and like look at them run and say, okay, you're good. Like you're on my team. I'm going to pay for you. You're going to come to France you're going to come around Europe running these races. Um, and, uh, you know, they pay for everything and they take cuts of the prize money, big cuts. Uh, they charge the athletes, you know, once the athletes win their prizes, then the coach sends their bill for coaching and for whatever, for shoes and food and whatever. Um, so at the end of the day, the athlete makes almost nothing. Um, and many of these coaches are super abusive. Like, you know, these kids, they're kids. We're talking about like 18, 19 year old kids from Kenya who don't know anything. And all of a sudden they fly from their village to, uh, like whatever the world championships in, in, um, in Lyon or something. And, you know, these coaches have total power, especially the women, you know, these coaches have total power over their athletes to the extent that, you know, the really abusive ones are physically abusive and, and beat the runners or lock them up or whatever. It's really, really fucked up. Um, I've never seen any, like, I'm sure there's things in the news media about it, but what I just know about it is from listening to people talk and seeing people who are like, you know, they are mentally and uh, physically screwed up because they weren't performing well and their coach would hit them or, yeah. Did you see that type of abuse when you were there? Did you see physical violence? No, no, no. There was no, I wasn't watching this. This physical violence is like, you know, the coach collects a team and takes that team off and they go and travel around Europe and he beats them or whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, no, no, I was, I was just in a village staying with a really incredible woman, um, a woman named Lorna Kiplagat, who was several times world champion in the marathon, uh, who opened a training camp, um, in E10, really quite quite an incredible kenyan woman um who uh who really was working to somehow improve this this culture of athletics in kenya which in many ways was quite fucked up um mostly through her husband who was formerly a coach uh her coach a dutch man she married her dutch coach um, and together they kind of tried to create a new kind of model of of athletics culture in kenya I don't know how much they've succeeded. Um, there's since been like a lot of political unrest since I was there and I was there in 2006, I think. Um, so a lot of things have changed, but, uh, but yeah, many things about it were kind of screwed up and, you know, Kenya produces really incredible runners, but there's a lot of, um, not quite so good runners who, you know, they get, they get mistreated in a lot of ways and they get lost, you know? Did you have any desire to take your running to the professional level or did you ever turn professional? Uh, I had no desire whatsoever. I really, um, I started running when I was about 16 <clears throat> and, uh, I ran in high school and then I ran at university at NYU. Um, and I did have quite a bit of success, but I think by the time I was 21, I was just so fed up with, with training and with what I came to see as just like a, uh, quite a, a, a practice that I couldn't find any meaning in, you know, this practice of training and becoming faster. And it, it just, at one point, just totally lacked meaning for me, which is probably part of some larger crisis in my life. But I basically was just so ready to give it up. And then once I finished university, I just, I was done. Um, I said, forget it. Um, and I've never had any desire to run ever again, <laughs> ever. <laughs> I had a similar experience with the, the soccer, like trying to play professional in Europe. I had my last tryout, um, didn't make the team, and I just knew at that moment, like, I was probably never going to play again. Like, and I really had yeah. Like, I've had a few moments where I, like, tried to get back in it, but just, just lost all love for it. I like watching it, but playing it, my body's so beat up from it. Like, just trying to warm up my ankle in the morning is yeah. just a, a task in itself. 
I mean, I think it's really crazy what in the U.S. And I don't mean I don't want to be like a harpy and be like, oh yeah, fucking America, fucking Americans. But like, there's quite a culture of. I, <clears throat> I mean, in many ways, it reminds me of these European trainers and their little Kenyan athletes, like you know, coaches and parents like driving their kids so hard. I mean, my my parents weren't 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 that way at all, but um, like coaches and parents driving their kids so hard and like. I mean, I've read stuff now about like, you know, training really hard as a runner. I, I, I knew lots of kids or guys who would come down with just like these weird fucking symptoms after running so much, you know, for so many years. Um, all of a sudden you have all kinds of weird anti-autoimmune things going on. You got all kinds of weird things going on with your body. Um, and a lot of research says that it's basically because like if you every day are pushing your body to some kind of like physical limit where your your sort of stress receptors are you know doing like an r2d2 kind of flipping out all the time then um eventually you lose the ability to like i don't know what like change your body's modes of being from like relaxed to like amped up and back again in a sane way um i think that was definitely true of me you know i spent a lot of time running which is quite an intense activity on your body and um it definitely had crazy effects on my body and what happened now, you know, I feel it. That's for sure. It's an interesting perspective that you bring into this conversation. Cause that, you know, right now major media, it's, they're talking about like Goggins, who is this like superhero, um, within the military. And he's done all these crazy physical feats. They have like the Wim Hof guy who's like submerging himself in like ice baths. And like, everyone's all about, pushing your body to this extreme to, I don't know, break the system that we've been hardwired into us so we can find whatever we're finding on the other side. Well, it sounds like what you just said is another perspective that's not really talked about where it's like you abuse yourself so bad for so many years, like you could actually turn yourself into somebody like with all these autoimmune. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally for pushing your body beyond, beyond limits. Absolutely. But um, I think that if you're basically like, you know, if you're a kid, if you're 16 or 17, how, how, you don't really have such a, a good ability to judge whether what you're doing is, um, is worthwhile. And I think if you are putting yourself, if you're trying to go be, push yourself beyond certain limits, um, you also have to have like the mental capacity to, to decide that the goal that you're seeking to achieve is worth it. You know, I was basically, I was just running in circles. I was literally fucking running in circles for years. Um, and it was awesome. Like I ran in circles really fast and, but I don't know that it, for me, I don't know that it was really meaningful. And I sort of got onto a path or like stepped on a track, you know, before I even had the opportunity to question or doubt it. When I was too young to question or doubt it, I stepped on the track and just started running um, and by the time I stepped off, I was an adult and I just was like, well, what the fuck was I doing? Like, why was I running in those circles? And it was basically like, oh, cause a bunch of adults said you should run in those circles, uh, for years. And, you know, like, but I think in general, you know, in my life, uh, I'm someone who tries to push myself beyond limits without a doubt. Um, but I'm also an adult now and capable of looking up in the sky and picking which stars I want to aim at, you know, um, because that's really what's important. There's a wonderful, I mean, it's a, a big fat book and it's notoriously difficult to read, but Infinite Jest, a novel by David Foster Wallace is very famously about this. And David Foster Wallace wrote a lot about tennis um, and youth tennis. The book is concerned mostly with youth tennis and a youth tennis academy um, and a bunch of kids who are in exactly the situation. Um, when, you know, what you just said um, caught my attention with uh, coming to this perspective that everything you had been doing was basically you either pushed by adults or you doing for the uh, um, accolades from the adults that you're surrounded by. Was that, you think, a driving factor to say, fuck it all and leave and go find your own way in Europe? Because I think that was like your first big trip away solo, right? Yeah, I definitely, it was, it was really, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a quite an extreme person, as my wife will probably tell you in some ways. In some ways, I'm a very... Uh, a very centered person, but when it comes to things like that, it was definitely a, a very strong reaction that I had to this culture that I felt like had produced me, you know, which was, um, I felt like I had more or less existed in a kind of constructed little trap where, you know, there was all these, all these sort of, um, all these things 
all these deceptions really keeping me running around the track. And, and then I stepped off and I said, well, fuck this, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything. Um, so I found it very difficult to, uh, to reconcile myself with a normal life, so to speak. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, (laughs) the first cigarette I smoked was, uh, was an unfiltered camel that, um, yeah, that's a stupid story. But, uh, but the point is really that this was a very strong and definitely an overreaction on my part, uh, to this, um, this very particular life that I had led up to that point. And it meant ultimately that, yeah, I would, I would spend a lot of time in France, first of all. Um, it's not exactly a direct line from me saying, no, I don't want to run anymore to, yeah, I'm going to shack up in France. But, you know, like when I started horrifying my parents, the first thing I did more or less was say, I'm not going to run track anymore. So, um, you know, and then the big kicker was, yeah, I, I went, I went to Europe, but now I'm not coming back and maybe I'll see you in a year or so. Uh, and that was like, a, a, that was, you know, there was like the hint of thunder. And then that was like really the, the lightning strike. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, this is a great way to like transition to this next portion of the conversation where, which is why, you know, I've been so intrigued to bring you on and have you share your story because, you know, it's from what I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you finish university and you just basically said, I'm going to Europe kind of classically like to just do the, the trip that a lot of um, Americans do a, a first time away from home. Um, but you've, you found a little bookstore in France that you fell in love with and were able to live in. Can you kind of take us through how you wound up living in a bookstore in France, which is called what Shakespeare and company. It's a very famous bookstore right across from Notre Dame, right? Yeah, it's super famous. And, um, and now it's quite a big bookstore. It was a significantly smaller bookstore when I was there. Um, it has a very old and extensive history and it would probably take a whole other podcast to even talk about the history and, and, um, why that bookstore is there and, and what what that bookstore means because unlike other kinds of shops and unlike other bookstores even this bookstore has a meaning and it has a very very important history um, important to me at least but the the way that i wound up at this bookstore was as you said i was taking a a, tour, a sort of tour which um i think my mom in a in an attempt to stave off a kind of post graduate malaise my mom suggested that I would take a tour, you know, go to Europe and see something for a few weeks or a month even. Um, and, uh, I don't know if I can give a really good description of my life at that point or what I was thinking or what I was planning on doing. Um, but I was not, um, I was not in, let's say a, a goal, a goal minded mindset or a goal oriented mindset at that point in my life when I was 21 and I had just stopped running, which was basically the, the, um, the backbone of my life and routine and everything. <clears throat> I was really pretty much an indifferent student while I was at university. I was a really quite an extensive reader, but I was a totally indifferent student. And, uh, and so I was going to take this trip and, you know, it was just kind of momentum that was taking me there and I would have had to put the brakes on it. I didn't. So I wound up going to London for a week and then, um, and I hated it. London, I found it, I found it at that point. I've never been back, but this was 2000 and 2010. And I just found it the most unpleasant place ever. Um, and so like five o'clock in the morning, um, I got on a Eurostar and got into Paris. I don't know what, like an hour later, seven o'clock. And I just remember getting out of this, out of the train, taking the, taking the Metro into the middle of Paris and, and coming out of the train, coming out of the metro in Châtelet, which is like one of the most chaotic and awful metro stations in Paris, and just coming up to the street, and I just, I don't know what it is, you know. I, I think that certain certain places in this world are very charged with very strong power, and uh, for different reasons, we're more sensitive to different things. And I just got out of the metro, and I said, wow, this 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 might be my place, you know. Uh, And obviously millions and millions and millions of people from around the world all feel exactly the same thing, which is why Paris is the single most popular tourist destination in the world. Um, But uh, a few hours later, I went into a bookshop, which is quite close to where I came out of the metro there. 
on the left bank in um, in the Latin Quarter, and uh, and I just started talking to someone. And sometimes, if you're lucky, or if I don't know if something's meant to be, then you just happen to start talking to those people who, like, they were just meant to be your friends. And the guy I started talking to, he turned out to be my best friend of all time and uh, the godfather of of our oldest son. And um, and he basically told me, okay, well, I'm going to get off of work in a few hours and like go to this coffee shop around the corner and sit and have a coffee and meet me there in a few hours. And um, and then ever since that point. A, ever since that point, we've been friends, but in that immediate, the immediate aftermath of that encounter, um, I had just found like a kind of a certain type of soulmate and, and, uh, and a kind of older brother who kind of looked after me in a way that no friend I had ever had looked after me, um, and was, uh, was sort of receptive to, to my curiosity and certain, certain love that I have which had never found any kind of partner in anyone I'd ever met. And so through this friend of mine, whose name is Terry, and he now runs, he worked for many years at Shakespeare and Company, but he now runs a bookshop in Madrid. Um, and we were just on vacation together. He just came to Sweden. He loves coming to Sweden. Um, and he also loves Gulspong. Gulspong's his favorite place in the world. And, uh, but through this buddy of mine, Terry, um, I was able to sort of put a foot down and then, um, and then eventually put another foot down and, and then, you know, realistically say, okay, well, I'm just going to like not leave. I'm just going to live here. Uh, and that also was contingent on all kinds of other events and people and, um, and a lot of luck and timing, but mostly it was just like, I, I really, I definitely loved a lot of different things. And this friend of mine, Terry, who I met at the bookstore, he definitely saw and recognized this love and shared it. And it was like, okay, well, here we're like we're brothers, you know. That's great. Okay, buddy, just like go wait around the corner for me and and you know drink a coffee and and then we'll talk. And then we did, and you know, the rest is history. So, is this bookstore you're referring to? Is the Shakespeare and Company bookstore that you stumbled into? Yeah, uh, it's right in the smack in the middle of Paris. Um, and I'm someone like I have, I have like a really serious. It, like it goes beyond just like liking books, but like I have a compulsion and it's actually gotten much better as I've gotten older. Um, because like, you know, I, I can't have so much things and I don't have much money, but like I have a compulsion to acquire books. Um, so like, you know, if I go into someone's apartment to have a shelf of books, like it's not even anything about the person. Like I have to go look at the books and have to see what they are. And I saw that there's this bookstore here. So I have to go buy some books and look and see what there is and, um, and that's what I was doing there was buying books. Had you heard about the Shakespeare and company before you wandered in? It was, or is it just a random occurrence? You wandered in this bookstore and then met Terry. I I knew, I knew that there was some kind of famous bookstore. I had no idea. Like I had no idea the extent of the history of the Shakespeare and company and like what it was. And I had no, I really had no understanding of that. Um, I just knew that there was this bookstore and I needed some books and I loved to buy, to get books and to see what kind of books they might have. And, yeah. This is actually, I think something the audience really needs to hear about because it's such a romantic story in so many ways, not just your story, but the bookstore itself and its inception. Do you mind taking a moment or as long as you need to kind of help the audience understand the significance of this bookstore, um, not just to you, but to the world and, and to Paris. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can tell you a bit about it. What I'll do before I say anything is to, to mostly refer to you, refer you to the bookstore itself. Um, because the, the owner of the bookstore who was a man named George Whitman who died in 2011, I believe, or 2012, he, um, was fortunate enough to have a daughter to whom he could bequeath the bookstore, Sylvia, Sylvia Whitman. And, um, and, Sylvia Whitman is a very special person and she is in every way the sort of um, the tender of that flame of uh, inspiration, which the bookstore grew out of. Um, and so, you know, there are books about the bookstore that the bookstore has published itself and um, that's the definitive source. But, and also you have to understand my history of the bookstore is cobbled together from like 
a thousand conversations with other people who either lived at the bookstore or worked there. You know, it's like a, it's an oral history mostly. But what I will say is that um, from what I know, George Whitman was a, like, I mean, he was a man up your alley shape and he was really an adventurer of all stripes. And um, after many adventures, uh, the latest of which was being a an infantryman, I believe an infantryman in the U.S. Army in World War II, he wound up in Paris <clears throat> and he wanted to stick around. Why wouldn't he want to stick around in Paris, of course? Um, and he wanted to open a lending library for GIs in Paris. Uh, and at that time, the area of Paris in the Latin Quarter on the left bank, just across the street, more or less across the Seine from uh, Notre Dame, it was quite, um, up until recently, actually, it was quite, quite down at the heels, really like a, you know, bohemian quarter with a lot of poor people and a lot of shuttered storefronts. And he rented or bought, I don't know what it was at first, a storefront that, I mean, it's incredible when you realize that like it, this was in 1950 or around there, I believe, that he could rent it for almost no money. It was an old frame shop, I think I heard. Um, but you, you know, if, if you walk out of the front door of Shakespeare and Company, you're staring at Notre Dame. It's not like, you know, you're not, uh, you're not in the nosebleed seats. You know what I mean? You're up right there where the action is. Um, and he's opened this lending library and it ran for a few years and it was popular. It wasn't, it wasn't a bookstore. He wasn't selling things. I'm sure who knows what he was doing. Cause he's crazy. He was truly a, um, he was kind of a, he was kind of like a, a book, a book selling, um, <laughs> like a magician even, you know, there's, I think, I think everyone finds the form of artistry that suits them best. You know, if, if you're a true poet, then, then you'll find your form. And George Whitman's form was definitely selling books. And the bookstore was a, a vessel for something much higher and more distinguished than just the commerce of selling items. Um, and his, his poetry was, was a bookstore. Um, and so that's what he was doing. And at some point he decided he wanted to, uh, name the bookstore Shakespeare and company. And, um, I think up until that time it was called Les Mistral, which is a famous wind in the South of France. If you can believe that the French, you know, they have famous winds, but, um, he wanted to name it Shakespeare and Company and Shakespeare and Company. There already was a bookstore in Paris named Shakespeare and Company and a very famous bookstore um, run by a woman named Sylvia Beach. And Chapin, you can stop me if this if this is getting boring or um No, I love it. Please. I think that. I think it paints a really good picture of, of what makes this bookstore so enchanting to the world. Yeah. Um but Sylvia Beach was a famous um famous bookstore proprietor and publisher who very famously published Ulysses um, and her bookshop Shakespeare and company uh, was closed in the run up or during world war II. Uh, the, the, the story is that she refused to sell a copy of Ulysses to a Nazi or something like this. I don't know if that's true, but, um, but anyway, it was closed and George Whitman went and found her in the fifties and, and asked her if he could open Shakespeare and company. Uh, and she said yes. And uh, so that's how the bookstore became Shakespeare and Company. And then from that time on up until his death in 2011, I mean, George, he was, he died. I'm not sure how old George was when he died. He was in his 90s, maybe 95. Um, when, I, when I came to the bookstore first in 2010, George was obviously an old man and not far from his death. But he had just stopped really taking an active part in the management and running the day-to-day -day running of the bookstore. Um, and this is a bookshop that is in a building that's like from the 14th century. Um, and it's an old part of what was a monastery near Notre Dame. So that's to say that this is like a very old decrepit building that certainly does not have an elevator. And up until like the nineties didn't even have, uh, running toilets, um, you know, and George would walk up and down, you know, the three flights of stairs that separated his apartment from the bookshop all the time and shout at people and, uh, and, and lecture people and sell books up until the end, you know, and, uh, I think that's probably because it was his true calling in life and, and he was incredibly 
good at what he did. Um, but uh, I, I felt quite lucky to, I wouldn't say get to know him, but just to be around him and um, uh, understand a bit about who he was and um, and the history that he carried with him, which, I mean, he had, he came out of a very idealistic moment in the history of the world and uh, the history of Paris and the history of America too. He's, he was, he saw himself very firmly as American and, uh, and George, I think really saw his bookshop as a, as an instrument of a larger revolution. Um, and he, he had quite, um, he had quite grand ambitions about the bookstore. You know, he thought that the bookstore would grow until it became almost like a social movement. And um, throughout most of his life, the principal means through which this social movement regenerated itself and expanded itself was through something that George called tumbleweeds. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what the tumbleweeds were or are. Uh, tumbleweeds were young writers or painters or vagabonds or uh, adventurers or I don't know what, <clears throat> and not only, not only young uh, of all ages, who for whatever reason wound up in or around Shakespeare and Company um, and whom George depended upon as, uh, as people to run the bookshop, basically. Um, I think for a very long time, the bookshop didn't have any real employees. It just had people who would show up and work and eat and sleep and then move on or stay for five years or, you know, um, this was almost like an imagined bookshop as a commune, you know? Um, and, uh, I think from what I understand about the history of the bookshop, it had all the problems of a commune, but it also seemed to have many of the, um, the wonderful parts too, like, you know, in my time living and working at Shakespeare and Company, I met so many people who would just like come up to me and say, hey, like I spent some of the best times of my life here in this bookshop. Um, and like I met some of the greatest friends I've ever had here in this bookshop. And like, you know, uh, just to think that uh, that a bookshop was the the um, the catalyst for such um, such such deep feelings and um it's quite quite incredible. Uh, you you lived there for what, like five years? No, 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 no. Oh. Um, I I was at the bookshop. I lived there. I lived there for I lived there for maybe three or four months the first time I was there. It, it's I mean you have to imagine it's not like when I say lived there, it's not like I was living in an apartment and we had like running water or something. It's it's really it was quite um, it was quite uh, quite simple. You know the, the many parts of the bookstore at nighttime could be adapted into sleeping places. And then, um, you know, we had access to a toilet and, uh, Paris, which is a city of bums has public showers where we would go, you know, go and take a shower in the public shower, free public shower once a week. Um, who's on, uh, East Saint Louis, <clears throat> like a 15 minute walk away. Um, but I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know the feeling, Chapin, of like making a home in a place that ultimately is like, it's not a home, you know? It's not like, well, it is a home because there were many people there who were looking for something or traveling or adventuring or, I mean, I think the best way to phrase it is searching for something. And so there was this kind of community around that and um, and definitely around books. You know, George's famous rule was that anyone who lived at the bookshop would have to read one book a day. Obviously, this was a rule more observed in its um, in its breach than in its uh, completion, because that's quite a quite a hefty task. But the people who lived there would um, would work at least for a few hours a day when I was living there. Um, and uh, but ultimately, like you know, it's not it's not like you have your own comfy bed and um, and your own shower and a place to put your toothbrush. It's like everyone's stuff. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was living there, you know, everyone's bags, we would th all throw our bags in the only place where we could lock them at night. Because, of course, it's Paris. Like, there's bums everywhere. Um, 
you know, these are old buildings. It's hard to describe how uh, these, uh, you know, this building, it's like a, a part of a monastery from the 15th century. So it's not like, it's not like an apartment building that was built in like 1970 where, you know, the doors are really, really work properly. Um, like we, we would store all our bags at the time I was living there, you know, there were anywhere between like three to like seven or eight people living there together. Uh, the only place to store our bags was in the old, uh, Turkish toilet, which was out on the, on the staircase, you know, the, it was like a five, it's a five story building. I think that Shakespeare is in and, um, and on the landing between the second story and the third story, there is what is now a closet or I don't know what it is now, but at the time it became a closet, but it was the old Turkish toilet because before the installation of indoor plumbing in this building, uh, they had the Turkish toilet there on the the landing between the floors you know that was how people went to the toilet you'd go out to the toilet in the hall in the in the um the stairwell uh so like that's that's really what that's the kind of that's the kind of environment you're living in and i say that not to at all to to, to denigrate this what was for me like a a very happy home but um it's not cozy in the way that you know you want to stay forever um yeah no it's it's, it's, it's such a beautiful yeah, story and just so the audience kind of understands your daily routine I'm under the impression that like you said you would there was like three to seven volunteers more or less daily yeah. helping out around the bookstore what selling books checking people out books or selling them books and then um at night you would roll out your mats in between the book aisles or something like this and have like your social time maybe some wine uh some food <laughs> is that kind of how i remember the story being told the first time yeah. You're, 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 you're summarizing quite well, Chapin. Um, you have to imagine or remember that this is a space. It's, it's a space that, you know, like many spaces in old cities, it just evolves over time. And it's like, there weren't so much aisles of books as like, there were just, there are books everywhere still, you know? So like, it's a very, let's, I, I don't want to use a pretentious word, but it's a very organic space in that, like, in, there are nooks and crannies, um, and uh so we would find nooks and crannies to sleep in and um and that was that and then yeah of course it's paris so like uh, a decent bottle of wine costs you five euros and like if you're i mean i was i was quite poor uh, quite poor you know i didn't have a lot of money because i decided that i was that i was going to stay and um it doesn't cost a lot of money to drink wine and it's quite nutritious according to the french it's very nutritious to drink wine so so that was a principal form of nutrition um and george was like a part of your daily as well it sounds like like he he didn't just leave it to you guys to do your own things with like he was around kind of participating as well well he had been very recently but when when i was there he had really quite recently um more or less taken to his bed and that was the beginning of the final year of his life um and his daughter Sylvia, his daughter sylvia um had had started running the bookstore um after I mean, she she had had like, uh, from what I know, had been really active in in running the bookstore together with her dad for a while, um, and then when her dad really couldn't do it anymore, she she took charge of the bookshop. Um, so he, George wasn't there. I mean, our, our, funnily enough, like my principal interaction with George, uh, you know, he lived up in an apartment above the bookshop. And one of the duties of the people who lived there was to sort of like help George, you know, um, help George make lunch or like help George do whatever. Uh, and that was always like a really extremely entertaining chore, whatever it was. Like if you were helping George cook food, then that was a wonderful adventure. Like George had when I got there, he had for the first time gotten a television, um, you know, with the, the big modernizations that Sylvia, who uh, was George's, is George's daughter, um, that she introduced to the bookshop. You know, George never had a cash register. He just had like a box, you know, that he never took, 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 uh, really took any kind of serious accounting of how much money he took in and uh, how many books he sold and stuff like that. Uh, he never had a computer or a telephone. Um, and this is like, you know, 2005, 2006. Hmm. Um, so George really existed in another era, which is, was one thing that, um, was really that precious about him was that through him, you just like could smell the, 
the the air of you know like 1950 and 1960 because he never really left you know um and uh so you know george george had just gotten a television for the first time he never had a television and so you know going up and helping george with the tv get the tv on he loved to watch fox news george was like a really committed communist and socialist but he loved to watch watch fox news because it just got him so worked up and he would just shout you know he would shout at fox news on the tv and so it was like I mean, I'm, I don't mean to say make it sound like a cartoon because he definitely wasn't a cartoon. He was a human being. Um, but I think especially when you're a young and impressionable person, some especially older and accomplished human beings, they seem almost like almost like mythical creatures. You know, George is almost like some somebody that came down from Olympus uh, and, uh, you know, almost impossible to understand in that way, like who he was and what he did. Um, but I felt very grateful and still feel grateful that I got the opportunity to, um, to be close by and to like, just get a peek of, of really of history. Yeah. Uh, because that's, I mean, that's the kind of place that Shakespeare was and is, it's like, I just remember one morning when I was living there, I go into the toilet and I'm going I'm take, I'm, I'm pissing for lack of a better word. Cause that's what I was doing. You know, it's the morning. You're not even paying attention. I'm just sitting there pissing, not looking at anything. And my eyes just kind of drift. And I see this big hunk of metal in the bathroom. And I realize that it's some kind of huge, uh, like it, a huge, like, um, a date plate, like some kind of plate that was on the building somewhere or some other building somewhere. And it's just kind of lying around in the bathroom, like garbage. And I look at it and the date on it is 1615. Uh, and, you know, for someone who grew up in the suburbs of New York City and like you, all of a sudden you're just like standing next to an object that was made 400 years ago. Um, it's just, you know, that, that that's kind of like what what hanging around Georgia was like, at least for me, it's just like something inexplicable and um, momentous that you just try to understand or try to remember as best you can. No, it's such a romantic story, and I'm so happy that you got to have that experience. Sounds like, though, you mentioned that there have been like books written about George and the and the, the bookstore itself that the audience could go look up and learn more about. Definitely, and I think your best source is probably the um, Shakespeare and Company website because I I think that they have a history that they created, um, maybe a few years ago uh, that they wrote. Um, which is, I'm sure, really good. I've not seen it because I've been out away from Paris for a while. But, you know, that's that's the source, and you'll be able to learn about the bookstore. Um, and, and you know, Shakespeare and Company, it it has grown and changed. And um, and at the same time, it's, it's inspired this, this example of a kind of bookstore uh, that, uh, that has a, some kind of spirit. Um, has inspired many other bookshops and it's um yeah it's almost something like um like a movement or and yeah it's definitely worth checking out and how many books do you think you read while you're living there i read a ton of books actually um because you know you work for a few hours in the bookstore uh, you spend plenty of time drinking with your friends and chasing women but uh there's also you're just surrounded by books all the time and as a person living there, I could, you know, there are tons and tons of used books for sale at the bookstore. Uh, and I was allowed to borrow like whatever used book I wanted. You can't borrow a new book cause obviously a new book, it gets quite beat up when you read it, but, um, any used book I could borrow and read, um, which meant that I just had like tens of thousands of books at my disposal. Uh, so I read, I read tons of books. Yeah, I definitely, I probably read two or three books a week. That's for sure. Did you learn your French there as well? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I didn't really know this about myself before I lived in Paris for a while, but I really have a, a very deep interest in languages. And, um, that's another thing I'm, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, uh, uh, you know, about is that this, this very deep, uh, appreciation for and curiosity about languages that I have never even got the remotest, like little tickle when I was going through the, um, New York state public school system. Um, like I just remember sitting in Spanish class being like, this is fucking retarded. <laughs> and I just have no idea like what is going on. You know, it's like, and when I look back at it, it's just cause like 
like Spanish was being treated like biology and it was just like, okay, well, here's the verb and here's the noun. And like, can you learn all these nouns? See, uh, and it's like, I, I somehow managed to avoid learning Spanish for seven years or whatever it was. And, um, and then like, I just, and, and of course, you know, it's much easier to learn a language when you're, uh, in the place where the language is spoken. But I mean, come on, you know, uh, like I, I, now I know, like I'm a person who definitely loves languages and, um, and luckily, you know, that, that was another gift. I really think that the city of Paris gave me a lot of gifts and that was a gift that I got from Paris, which is this awareness of, um, of my ability to learn and my desire really to learn. How many years did you spend in Paris total? Uh, in total, I probably lived about two years in Paris, which that's probably divided up between two, two, uh, two trips or three trips, okay. two trips. And yeah. were you always going back to the Shakespeare and company or was that just a, a moment, like a brief moment when you first got there and you obviously go back and visit, but you stopped living there after a certain period of time? Well, I did. I, I lived there for about four months and then, um, and then I stayed around in Paris for another six or seven months. And I was, um, I was living with a girlfriend and we were both working at Shakespeare and company. Um, so my life was really still centered around that bookstore. Um, and my friends obviously were all in that bookstore. That was, you know, the center of my little social world there was the bookstore. Um, and, uh, and then when I went back, uh, I was in Shakespeare, weirdly enough, um, weirdly enough, not weirdly enough. Uh, it, it's quite, quite rational, but in 2016, I was, <clears throat> I was actually on my way to Madrid to meet my friend Terry. Um, and I was at, you know, I was kind of, I was in, in between in, in many senses of the word. And I was in between jobs. I just left the kind of a job that I wasn't really very content with. And I just left a relationship that I wasn't content with. And I had left a, a really crappy living situation in Brooklyn and decided I was going to move out of Brooklyn. And, um, and then I was on my way to Madrid to see my friend Terry and thinking that I would just, I would stay with Terry for however long I needed to, um, without really a firm idea of what I was going to do. And on my way there, I stopped in Paris because I hadn't been to Shakespeare and company in a while. And, um, the way friends do, you know, I was sort of given a place to stay and, um, and somebody raised a wine glass and, uh, and spent a few days, you know, I was going to spend a week there. Um, but after a few days I wound up, um, running into the woman whom I would eventually marry. And, uh, and so I wound up staying in Paris for a while. Uh, I stayed for about a month and I think much of that month I was probably staying at Shakespeare and company. Mm. Yeah. Because, yeah, you met Lily, who's Swedish, who I met many years ago hitchhiking through Sweden. And uh, now you live in Gothenburg. You guys have a family and you're a writer. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Um, we, uh, after a lot of moving around, we lived in, in France for a while, not in Paris, but we were in France for a while and in the U.S. for a while and have moved, moved around since then, since we met and since we got married. But, um, but now we live in Gothenburg, which is a... Uh, it's Sweden's second city on the West coast, um, between Oslo and, uh, Copenhagen. And, uh, and that's where we live. Yeah. And, and I am a writer, um, in with, fact, you, just, uh, you didn't finish your first book. Is that correct? I did. I finished a book last year and, um, and that doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that's out in the world yet, but, uh, but I've, for a long time had the object of finishing a book and, and that was, uh, that was something that I really longed to do for a long time, which, which I finally did. Yeah. Congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. Um, you are looking for a publisher. We talked a little bit about that pre-show. Um, and your book is called animal spirits. Is that correct? That's, that's true. Chapin. Um, <laughs> it's called animal spirits and, uh, it is, it's a book about a um, a kid with who has t two very different parents uh, who have two very different ideas about uh, the future of their family, and um, this young boy is given the opportunity to make the uh, the dreams of one or the other parent come true. Um, 
and uh, is put in the really awkward situation of having to decide between his parents and and figure out what should happen to the future of their family. Um, Does he have like uh, magical powers, or he just he no, 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 no magical powers. I should it should have some magical powers. That would probably really help me in selling the book, but it's <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not. There's no magic. It's kind of like yeah, um, the the, ch- the the child could like. Uh, become the professional athlete or the scholar and make one parent happy kind of theme. Is that kind of what I'm understanding? Yeah. Or it's mostly, you know, I think we all have, uh, we all have very strongly, even if we don't think they're strongly held, we have very strongly held ideas about what's right and what's wrong and what should or shouldn't happen. And, uh, when we get married or when we're in a long-term relationship, these ideas definitely come into conflict. And then when we have children, uh, these children somehow embody in certain ways this conflict that we have with our spouse or not con- doesn't necessarily need to be a conflict, but um, these children, our children definitely come to embody the relationship that we have with our significant other. And, um, and that's a struggle for the kid and for the parents. And, and, and that's mostly the, I think the theme of the book is this, uh, this struggle to reconcile your parents and, yourself and figure out who you are in relation to your parents and and what it is you want and what do your parents want and can you want the same thing or should you want the same thing dude that's deep brother it sounds like <laughs> how long did it take you to write that thing uh about a year and and yeah we'll we'll see maybe maybe it'll become a published book maybe it won't i think i'm happy either way i've already started working on something else and um like writing you know. a new book? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. nice. Yeah. Well, dude, I mean, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I brought you on because I think your story is something that will definitely inspire my friend David and a lot of the other listeners out there. Um, because like you did, you went to Paris, you found a place that you really connected with, and then things just started lining up for you. Now you're an expat living in Sweden with a beautiful wife, two beautiful children. And, uh, you just kind of took that first step out there to make it happen. Can you maybe talk to David and give him some word of words of encouragement or the audience in general on if they're thinking about doing something similar or starting that business, taking that first trip, what could you say to maybe inspire them to like make that happen? I would say in the first case that it's almost impossible, or at least I'm, I'm really reluctant to give anybody advice because I think that uh, giving advice is a pretty fraught business and, I would never want to be held accountable if I send somebody mm-hmm. down down the road to perdition. Um, but I can say this, which is that everybody has, this is the most corny line ever, but everybody has very deep within their heart like a, a compass um, that if they allow it to, will direct them to, to the fulfillment of their deepest desire, um, their truest desire, not, not just like superficial desires like, I want to sleep with supermodels and like, you know, that kind of stuff. But like, if, if you allow that compass to lead you, you know, all the, all the crap will, will fall away eventually. Um, and at the end of the road, you'll find yourself uh, where you have truly always wanted to be. Even if you can't even imagine at the beginning, like I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't set out with any objective that I could see in mind, but I did have a really, um, or I've always had like a really difficult time not doing precisely what I thought was the right thing. Um, and that has really always gotten me into a lot of trouble, but in the long run, um, that trouble has always led to good things. Um, like, you know, I, I'll, I'll always shoot myself in the foot, but like, uh, the person who comes up to help me when I shoot myself in the foot and like gives me a band aid. um, you know, more or less reliably turns out to be my best friend or I don't know what, you know, you find lucky breaks in, in all the right places and, um, and you can't really, yeah, you can't, you can't decide at the start where you're going to end up, but you just have to, you have to, um, make sure that you're making the right choice every day or every moment, really. You have to make the right choice. Beautifully said, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. We love you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Chapin. It was really awesome talking to you, man. Awesome, Zach. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. What a cool, inspiring story of someone stepping out into the world, stepping out of their comfort zone, finding that one place they fit in, and then having all these 
great, beautiful events happening after finding your wife, meeting your best friend. I mean, it's just one of those great examples that I love to share with all these misfits and rejects out there that taking that first step is where you have to start. And then who knows what comes after that, but something will come. And your story, again, just brings me so much motivation, so much inspiration. Thank you for coming on and sharing. Please remember, if you're a first-time listener, hitting that subscribe button really helps me out in the ratings, helps this message get out there. If you feel like sharing this message, I do appreciate you sharing these episodes with people that you think they might inspire. And I look forward to seeing you in next week's episode. Thank you for joining me. I think you all are so very beautiful. And I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.